everybody. This is Kim Nicolaides with Advent Christian Voices here uh, broadcasting live on this Memorial Day, <clears throat> Monday, uh, May 28, 2018 with Advent Christian Voices. Uh, glad that you could uh, be with us or check out this podcast if you're doing it afterwards. We're continuing in our study through uh, the Gospel of Luke, and we're still in the first chapter. We've made it up to uh, the 57th verse, I believe, and we're going to be talking about some very interesting and possibly, you might say, controversial uh, topics today, but hopefully we'll be able to shed some light on them and uh, maybe make progress in our own understanding of uh, God's plan of redemption. For us, but before I start, I wanted to just read through the scripture I have in mind that I'm going to look at today, with uh, um, reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter one, um, verses 57 through 66. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. They made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote his name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then shall this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Amen. That brings us to the end of our reading for today's text that I wanted to take a look at. So Luke provides us with this account of this traditional practice for boys born into the Jewish family, which occurs on the eighth day after their birth, which we refer to as circumcision. This was actually something that was commanded by God for Abraham and for all his descendants after him in order to excuse me, signify, to symbolize, and to seal the covenantal relationship which they had with him by virtue of the fact that God had called Abraham to himself and set him apart from the rest of the people in the world and had established with him his covenant. And in order to demonstrate that you were a bona fide member of that covenantal community, which enjoyed all of the covenantal blessings, therein circumcision was necessary if you were a male. It was the first step in any case. You might ask, why would God insist on such a practice, which would appear to be nothing less in reality than that of a mutilation of a perfectly healthy body of a child while he was still so young? And that's a good question. You might, some might say that, you know, if God were really God, God of all creation, and it was his will for men to be circumcised, then Why did he create them with the uh, foreskin in the first place? That's a good question as well. 
Some would answer that studies have shown Jewish boys and men and even Jewish married women alike have enjoyed higher levels of health and freedom from a number of infections and illnesses illnesses that have commonly plagued other societies on account of the greater likelihood of such an infection occurring when there's this foreskin involved, which apparently in some cases tends to trap dirt and other foreign substances. I don't know if that's true or, or not, but I strongly doubt it, and I'm not impressed at all by that argument, for one, because, well, for one, whenever I hear someone say, studies have shown such and such to be the case on anything, I'm very wary that such evidence is really not anything more than just wishful thinking. In this case, I think it's very suspect, and even if there were any truth in it, I would strongly suspect there would be a much better remedy than taking this particular, what I would consider somewhat drastic action. <clears throat> My suspicions are based in part on perhaps uh, not so, the not so well-known fact <clears throat> of the what we call the irreproducibility <clears throat> of the vast majority of very prominent scientific studies which are in fact published in peer reviews, articles, so-called scientific journals. <clears throat> uh, you know, our recent article I was reading that was published in the science magazine showed that out of every 100 prominent studies done in social sciences, rigorous efforts to subsequently reproduce them were successful in only 39 cases. <clears throat> and of 53 landmark studies in the fields of hematology and oncology and subsequent efforts to validate them, only six have been successfully validated. And that's amazing considering the fact that such wobbly research is way too often used as justification for new governmental policies and programs. And I could spend a lot of time critiquing the failures of those in our so highly esteemed academic and governing institutions based on their faith in these what I would call human idols of hubris. But I will have to save that for another day. There are, in fact, several good reasons for God have used circumcision as the sign of the covenant that he established with Abraham uh, and his offspring. For one, it sets them off from the rest of humanity as a special nation. It establishes a boundary by which you can physically determine who belongs and who does not belong to this nation, which God is about to create, and which as a nation is meant to be itself a sign, not just to themselves, but to everyone else in the world as well that they are set off, they are separated, they are sanctified to the service of God. At least initially that was the case. So first of all, such a physical sign is needed. Another reason why circumcision was chosen to be that sign and is in fact the most appropriate sign fulfilling that role is because of the reason why the nation of Israel was established by God in the first place. It was not just to bless Abraham and his seed forever, but in fact, so that through his seed, all the rest of the nations in the whole world would be blessed. In other words, it was to be through the seed of Abraham that the whole world was to be blessed. So this act of circumcision points not only to the instrument by which that blessing is to occur, the means by which that blessing is to come into the world, uh, but to the means by which the seed of Abraham will, in fact, be a blessing 
to the rest of the world. That is to say, uh, perhaps in a somewhat cryptic fashion, as was necessary at the time, so as not to give away the whole plot, redemptive plan and strategy of God, the seed of Abraham, which was to be the means of blessing the world, was to be himself cut off, ultimately. In fact, it was through the cutting off of the seed of Abraham that the world was to be blessed. And these were, in fact, the very words that were to be used in describing this procedure of circumcision as well. God commanded Abraham to cut off the foreskin of every male child by, to be identified as an Israeli. Israeli, you were to one whose foreskin was cut off. In a sense, you were to be cut off from the world. And uh, it's very interesting when you think that these are the very same words that are used in the Old Testament to describe what was to happen to the seed, that is, to the Messiah. He was to be cut off, cut off from the land of the living. In Isaiah 53, 8, it says, he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. In that case, it was talking about the suffering servant whom we believe to be the Messiah, and that passage, incidentally, describes in intimate detail the account of the crucifixion, the final cutting off procedure. Also in Daniel 9.27, it says that after the prophecy, the 62 weeks when the Messiah was to become, it says that the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And after that, an earthly ruler will come and destroy the temple and the city. And we believe that could only refer to the crucifixion of Jesus when he was rejected by the leaders of Israel as their king, and so had literally nothing in that sense. The subsequent destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans fulfilled the remaining part of that prophecy. It's also very interesting to do a word study of this phrase in the Old Testament. We see that it's frequently used to mean to destroy or completely kill someone, even an entire nation, as was the case with Egypt when God said in Exodus 9.15, that although he had already sent them a few plagues, he could, had he wanted, to have them simply cut off from the earth. To be sure, there's actually several places where the phrase is connected with the term his people, used uh, when it was referring, for instance, to a, a punishment that is to be inflicted on somebody who has committed a capital offense. For instance, in Exodus 31.14, it says, shall keep the Sabbath where it is holy. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from his people. So you see, the point I'm trying to make here is that to use the phrase being cut off was synonymous with being executed in the Old Testament. There's hence the unavoidable inference that this ritual, which with it the symbolic need for the execution, not only of Messiah who is to come, which we who recognize Jesus as that fulfillment can see its significance here, but also actually it points as well to the cutting off in a sense of the whole, the entire nation of Israel. And that's something, however, that one could say uh, Israel has done to themselves by virtue of their rejection of the Messiah and fulfillment of this prophetic action. Remember in uh, Deuteronomy 1818, Moses said that God would raise up for him, for the people, a prophet after him, rather, uh, who would be like unto him. 
But whoever refuses to listen to him would be cut off. In fact, prophetically talking about the entire nation of Israel. So we can see the connection between the ritual of circumcision and the need for the Savior to be cut off. Uh, simply from the innuendos that are inferred in our translation of the text. However, were we to look at a little more closely at the Hebrew text, we would see that this is even more obvious because the very words which are used in the Bible, whenever a covenant is being made in Hebrew, the word meaning to cut is used. One never simply makes a covenant. Rather, he always cuts a covenant. And this is the case with Noah and the Ark. It was the case whenever anyone made such a covenant with any of their neighbors, in fact. But it was especially the case whenever a covenant was to be established between uh, an individual or individuals and God, as was the case with Moses and Abraham. Uh, and there were not only were covenants said to be cut, but they were literally cutting off of the lives of whatever animals may have been used as the sacrifices there, owning sacrifices that were used for the very process of establishing the covenant, which were to be the basis upon which that covenant was set to be in effect. So with Abraham, for instance, it was necessary for him to cut in half a bunch of animals and birds, lay them on the ground so that God could then in symbolic fashion, in the form of a smoking vessel, be seen by him to descend and go between the slain animals, indicating his intention of honoring the covenant at the cost of sacrificing if necessary his own life. Moses was said to also have required the sprinkling of everything that was to be sanctified or set apart with the blood of the covenant. So I, I believe Abraham understood that. I think that may have been part of the reason he was willing to take his son Isaac up on the mountain, Moriah, in obedience to God's command to sacrifice him there. Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed God had the ability to raise up his son in any case. Of course, all this points to a third reason why it was necessary to have this surgery or circumcision in order to be a member of God's chosen people. And that was because circumcision of the foreskin was also meant to be a symbol and a reminder of the need we all have to be cleansed from the sin we inherit from our first parents. Cutting off the foreskin was a symbolic way of rejecting our own connection to our earthly parents in us. Hence, a symbol of repentance and turning from sin, and particularly from the sin of the pride of self, in a sense, which we get by virtue of our blood connection with our earthly parents and through them to our first parents. So all these are reasons why circumcision was the right which was essential for entrance into this community known as the nation of Israel. And there are also reasons why it is not necessary for us today continue being circumcised if we are Gentiles. Because the community, which has always been called the people of God, uh, no longer, at least the Gentile portion, no longer need to go through that um, ritual. That's because the whole purpose for the creation of the nation of Israel in the first place, in a sense, has been fulfilled and atoned for in that the seed, which was prophesied, has already come, and he's already been cut off already. So if we were still thinking we need to be circumcised, it can only be because we're still looking forward to the coming of the seed that is to be cut off. No need, done already. The only reason you want to get circumcised today, 
would be. In fact, if you were actually a physical descendant of Abraham and still needed to identify for purposes of historical solidarity with your ethnic community. But from the standpoint of spiritual benefits um, with perspective to your relationship with God, that is not the case. Our relationship, whether Jew or Gentile, today with God is based on one thing and one thing alone, and that's our faith in the Lord Jesus and in his having been cut off for our sakes. And that is his sacrificial atoning death on the cross for us. Not to say there are no further implications in having such a faith as to one's membership in the family of God, which continues to enjoy a covenantal relationship, the same one offered, in fact, to Abraham and his descendants, which continues to be expressed in community. However, that community today is known as the church, comprised of all nations and people groups, and as such, it's primarily expressed in the New Testament as the local congregation of believers. And being such, we still have a ritual with a sign, sealing and symbolizing our entrance into it. Now, this is where I get into the controversial part, because I know uh, people probably don't understand this entirely. But entry now into it is recognized through the ritual of baptism, which the New Testament identifies, incidentally, with circumcisions in Colossians 2, 11 through 13, and uh, I will confess that although being an avid Christian, I have evolved in my uh, understanding of this. You know, when our denomination was first founded, it was comprised in large measure by Methodists coming out of the Wesleyan tradition. And they didn't black believe in the practice of infant baptism. However, since there's been this unfortunate trend, I believe, in the Anabaptist Baptist understanding practiced by William Miller, who incidentally did not believe in conditional immortality. Um, there is, you know, there is the argument that says uh, if um, baptism were simply to replace um, circumcision in the New Testament, then why? did not the uh, apostles argue for that in Acts 15 when the question of why was it not necessary for the uh, Gentiles to be baptized to come up? And uh, that's probably the strongest argument I've heard. But I know what the answer to that question is. The question is that it was still necessary. It's still necessary today for Jews to be be circumcised. And the reason for that is not, is still, because they are meant to be a sign. The Jews are meant themselves to be a sign pointing to the Messiah as a nation, to the world. And uh, although before the Messiah came, uh, the significance of that sign was simply that they were pointing forwards to the fact that the Messiah would come through them, through their seed, and be cut off. But now it's still a sign because it was necessary for the nation of Israel as a whole so that the world could be saved to themselves be cut off. And that's exactly what's happened. And the fact that they continue to um, uh, practice circumcision, simply a symbol of their own condition in having cut themselves off, something they've done to themselves. So it's still a sign from God's perspective 
to the world of the condition of the nation of Israel. So from the Jewish perspective, uh, yeah, there's a reason for them to be circumcised because they're supposed to represent the means by which to the world salvation comes. Um, and therefore, if you're a Jew today, uh, uh, practicing this uh, rite of circumcision, that's what you're doing. Ironically, you're pointing to the fact that you have um, cut yourself off from your own salvation. So for a Jew, yeah, circumcision is still functional in that sense because you're, you're continuing to. But eventually, of course, when all the Gentiles come in, then that will no longer be necessary. So that's how I look at it. I believe this is an important issue, and uh, there's so much more. The other reason I believe in that uh, children should be baptized is because um, faith is a gift which God has given preeminently to children. We have cer certainly in no position to deny them this covenantal right based on any arrogant presumptions we may have regarding the legitimacy of such childlike faith. Um, so... I'm grateful for the Advent Christian denomination's gracious toleration of me, knowing as they do of what my, what they might call contrary position on this issue. And although important, it's apparently not of such a way to be deemed an absolutely essential doctrine. Uh, if not, I would not be in it, or at least continued allowed to teach in it, I suppose. But in addition to this illustration of the ritual of circumcision, there are several other reasons why uh, Luke's inclusion of this event in the text that I believe are very beneficial to the reader with regard to their understanding of, of what God says about the nature, his own nature in here. This is inferred in the clue that we're given at the ending of this passage when observed by uh, the people, it was made clear to them that the hand of God was in these things. And how did they know that? What does this tell us about the hand of God or the nature of God? Of course, everything in the Bible could be said to tell us something about God. That's why we have the Bible. It's a revelation of who God is from first to last, and precisely because of that, it's important to study. Since he is our creator, if we want to even know who we are ourselves in terms of our own identity, it only makes sense that we would need to know who our creator is and what he's like especially since we have been created in his own image and likeness for the purpose of his design. And what this passage tells us about God, first and foremost, is that I believe he is faithful to his word. That is because what this event describes is a fulfillment of what God's word said would happen precisely in the way he said it would happen at precisely the time he said it would happen. And this is very important for us to know because God has said so many other things in his word that we're still waiting to see come true because the time for their fulfillment is yet to arrive. And this is ex extremely important for us to know because we need more than anything else in the world to have confidence that these things will, in fact, eventually occur. And this means that we'll just have to wait sometimes for that to happen. The people in this narrative were living at a time when the whole nation of Israel had been waiting for 400, over 400 years forgot to do anything which they could literally see in terms of fulfilling the promises he had made. 
Now it's been close to 2,000 years since God told us in his word, Jesus died for our sins. Our salvation has been accomplished already. We need to do nothing more than put our trust in him and we'll be saved. But that salvation still awaits Christ's return. Our salvation, which encompasses every conceivable need we will ever have, both now in this age, which we presently are living in this world, as well as in the future age, which in God as promised, he'll never leave us nor forsake us, but will grant us eternal life that will be filled with purpose, meaning, hope, and joy. So we can be glad, since that our debts have all been paid up in full by God, and not only that, but God actually loves us and wants us to have a relationship with him, perhaps even more than we want with him. But that's only because we don't really know him that well yet. We see this faithfulness demonstrated to his expressed word in the way everything that Gabriel said would happen just a few verses earlier does. In spite of the unbelief on the part of Zechariah and others, you see it happen in spite of the fact that these things are happening. Those who are supposed to be in the agents of God and his ambassadors who represent him are not getting too much in the way of things they may think they otherwise would like to have. They're being treated with contempt and justice on every side. They're done, downtrodden, and just their ability to even eke out an existence is being put into serious question here. Yet God sustains them and brings to pass all that he's ever promised. And some of these things are pretty exciting promises, by the way. There are at least a couple other things in this passage that it intimates about the character of God besides his faithfulness to his word, which we should mention as well, one being the graciousness of his character, the other being his power. I say his graciousness is highlighted in this passage because of the name which is given to the Baptist. Names were extremely important in the Bible, much more so than they are today in our culture. In the Bible, they always mean more than simply identifying one from another person or giving them because they may happen as like the sound of them. Names in the Bible are meant to signify something uniquely distinctive about the person who carries that name. And we don't normally have names being assigned by God, as we do in this case, Jesus, whose name means Savior, obviously, was one. And John, John's name here is a shortened version of Johannan, which is a Greek transliteration for the Hebrew, which it means Yahweh, or God is gracious. God is, in fact, very gracious in just his willingness to reveal himself to us, apart from which we would never have any hope of knowing anything about him. Now, the graciousness of God is being revealed to us here, not just in the naming of John. John, by the way, is not a name that's even found anywhere in the Old Testament. Yet we see it jumping up all over the place in the New Testament. We notice that the friends and relatives of Zechariah and Elizabeth seem to be quite surprised when his parents are so insistent upon giving their son this name because they also don't know anyone related to them before that who's had that name. So what I think Luke is trying to get across here is that John is not merely going to be a prophet of the Most High God, but he is going to represent a new message from God that is going to be in its character more gracious than God may ever have seemed to have been in the past. It's not that God hasn't always, in fact, been gracious, but just that now that aspect of his nature, which may not have been quite so obvious in the past, is going to become that much more conspicuous in terms of the way he deals with men. So the fact that God is gracious is going to become a major indeed, if not the major theme of the New Testament 
And so the new access and the new way that has been opened up to God is one of the evidences of that. To all men, uh, regardless of their past, regardless of their sins, regardless of their unworthiness, God's grace is manifested in his seemingly infinite mercy. God's grace is now manifested in his incredible patience. God's grace is now manifested in his most powerful, all-conquering, and most extravagantly lavish display of love with an open invitation to all of his creatures, regardless of past defiance or misdeeds or utter unworthiness. That's not saying they will stay that way, but God will change them. They will only come, even just as they are. That accessibility to God is evident in one's ability to see God, to recognize God, to have our blindness removed, the eyes, our eyes opened to the, his presence in our midst, and to be aware his sanctifying presence. And this was noted when Jesus asked his disciples who they thought it was, and Peter responded with the right words. He was the Messiah. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barger, because flesh and blood could never have uh, made this known to you. In other words, it wasn't revealed to him by man. It was not Peter's keen insight, nor anyone else that had revealed that knowledge to him, but only God, the Father in heaven, by his grace, had done so. And this, by the way, was John's most esteemed role and privilege and honor, to be the one who would point others to Christ. So in initiating this access to God and opening the door to heaven, John was certainly granted as much grace as was possible. And being able to see who Jesus was, as well as representing to others the bestowal of that most amazing grace of God. Finally, it's mentioned in this passage uh, also, it reveals a little bit about the power of God, not just in bringing to pass these things which were mentioned here, but in the display of the miraculous and complete instantaneous healing of John's father, Zechariah, at the very moment of the public naming of John. The healing itself was one of the ways in which Gabriel's prophecy was fulfilled, demonstrating again God's faithfulness to his word, but it also is a display of the absolute power of God over all of the creation and over everyone in it. The miracle of Zechariah's healing was instantaneous. Everyone who heard about it was duly impressed, especially because up to then, miracles were something very rarely, in fact, never seen by anyone in the land of the living for the past four or 500 years. Anyone who wanted to claim that God was asleep or God was away on business or that God was just not very interested in his people anymore wouldn't have much in the way of contemporary evidence to refute them. I mean, the other miracles we saw earlier in this chapter uh, were, for the most part, private. But this is the first one that was public, a display of God's omnipotence. And it revealed, as it was in this child's circumcision ceremony, it carried no small amount of weight in the direction of signifying something pretty special about this child. Now, I just want to mention briefly, uh, some commentators, John MacArthur among them, would say that John here was healed of both, or Zechariah was healed of both muteness in his, that is his inability to speak, and deafness instantaneously. But I think that's a perfect example of eisegesis. There's no reason in my mind to believe Zechariah ever lost his hearing during this period. And um, that's because of the word that's used or being deaf, if he were to be uh, have to suffer both 
muteness and deafness. I think that would be a uh, far too harsh a punishment in any case, not just upon himself, but upon his wife, Elizabeth, for having to bear up with him. But then John MacArthur is a believer in eternal, eternal conscious torment, so I suppose that's not too harsh a punishment in his mind. But if we look at the verb supowel, that's to be silent, was not only used in the New Testament, but in the uh, Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, I can say with great confidence, this punishment of Zechariah was restricted to muteness or his ability to speak. Signs, by the way, that people made to him to get his decision regarding the name of John was not because he was deaf. Sometimes when someone's mute, they often tend to treat them as if they're deaf as well. But these signs uh, were actually could be translated as simply nodding in his direction. <clears throat> indicating you know, what it, what's your opinion. So the public display of miracles was something that would become very conspicuous, a feature of, of the ministry of Jesus, so, uh, so much so that no one, whether Jew, Gentile, non-believer, or believer could ever possibly credibly deny Jesus wasn't himself a miracle worker, not only of Jesus' ministry, but also of the disciples after him. But it's interesting that this was not, in fact, a feature of John's ministry. In fact, he was said to have given no such signs to validate his ministry. So we might discern from that that the power evident in such miracles given to Jesus and his disciples was another aspect of the grace that John foreshadowed. So in that sense, the grace which John's names was signifying, foreshadowing, and pointing to is also apparently the means by which that power could be manifested in their lives. And I believe the power is still available, by the way. To any of us today who are willing to submit to the reign of Christ to the extent they do in their lives, because while yet it was perhaps more necessary, it was certainly more necessary to bear witness to, to Christ's identity, the grace nonetheless, which the kingdom of God is characterized by today, and which Christ inaugurated while here is still very much a reality in the hearts and minds of his followers, although invisible to the world at least until Christ returns. Well, uh, that pretty much covers uh, this section. So I'm going to just say a quick prayer for us. Almost gracious, uh, most true and faithful and powerful God of all creation, we bow in humble recognition of your sovereign might, and we pray for your church today that you would help us grow in that grace, which is ours in Christ alone know you better, that you may be glorified through us and in the world until your Son, our Lord, returns in great glory and majesty. Reign visibly over all your creation, and may we submit fully to his reign in our hearts, even now, as we pray through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, that covers it for today. Uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, this is Kim Nicolaitis signing out with uh, Advent Christian Voices. Until next time.